This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC Campfires is brought to you by DSC, the Dallas Safari Club, conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Ruger, rugged, reliable firearms. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, the callingest call made. Double Nickel Taxidermy, where hunting memories are preserved. Now, here's your host, Larry Wysu. Welcome to the DSC Campfire. Last week, we talked a brief amount of time, thanks to the rain, about some of the things I'm trying to get done on my place, and we talked very briefly about some of the things in terms of planting trees. Now, we're planting seeds, and in some instances, we're digging out some trees and other parts of our property that we have access to, to neighbors and to friends who are allowing us to dig up some oak trees and persimmon trees, and particularly the little hard, kind of yellowish-looking plum. When I was a kid growing up on the creek that my dad pushed in, we had a bunch of those plum trees, and I think I was probably as big a competitor for those as were the coons and the possums, <laughs> raccoons, as I mentioned, and foxes, and good gosh, coyotes, no telling what else ate those things when we hit the ground. I know, of course, deer did as well, too. So I want to try to plant a bunch of those and nothing else, hopefully down the road somewhere, somebody can make some jelly or some, maybe even some plum wine made from the property that uh, we own. Got a lot of berries on our property as well too, primarily dewberries, and uh, these are little blackberries that probably would be called that farther north, but down in Texas we call them dewberries, and a little bit different species, and really good to eat, and make great jellies, make great jams, and oh my gosh, make great juice as well too, and of course because of all that, they also make pretty darn good wine. 
when I was a little kid growing up, I had an uncle who had access to about 20 different 30 to 40 gallon wine barrels. And as a result of that, he seemed to, to think it was his job to be the family person to uh, do all the wine. He would uh, make wine out of everything from potatoes to the different berries we had, to peaches to plums, to, and it was always really good and typical of the German wines. It was a very, very sweet wine that uh, he made, but I remember him delivering gallons of it to uh, my mom and dad, and on those days, my granddad had a nice house with a big old gallery, that, or porch, if you will, that ran all the way around the uh, the house and so which whichever way the wind was blowing or whichever way they were shade people would kind of sit around and and uh drink a little bit of wine on a sunday afternoon and tell hunting stories and tell stories about when they were growing up and some of my greatest memories are being able to sit around and just kind of listen to those stories i, I regret the fact that we did not have tape recorders back then which was kind of the going thing at the time but wish we'd have had the video cameras we have these days and the different ways to which to record voices. Some of those stories will never again be told, and uh, it's, it's such a shame because they were those folks were really great storytellers. Back then, they didn't have a TV or a computer to sit in front of, so whenever they got together, they kind of sat on the porch, maybe drank a little wine, told stories about all kinds of different things, and Gosh, I wish I could remember some of those because I remember sitting there just totally in awe and fascinated with the stories they told about hunting and the area kind of where I grew up and fishing and how alligators were prevalent in this area at one time. And then I used to listen to my one of my great-granddads who thankfully was alive when I was born, not too very old, but I remember him telling stories about taking his hounds and hunting black bear in the uh, cane breaks of the Colorado River, which was probably only about, oh, maybe 10, 12 miles to the south of, of the area that we grew up in. People don't realize the number of black bear that were in this country at one time. And during those years, too, they hunted deer, but they hunted deer primarily for food. And with the number of people that were in this area, a lot of times those, those deer didn't have a whole lot of a choice uh, or a chance either. They, they didn't survive very long, but those that did grew some pretty darn nice antlers. Remember my dad having a six-point buck on his wall at uh, a really nice six-by had brow tines and g2s and was about 16 17 inches wide gnarly looking rascal and he told me about how he shot it with a uh, double barrel shotgun when he was really still kind of a youngster back then a lot of folks would come out and they'd set up deer camps and, and squirrel camps and if you remember not too long ago my podcast with luke clayton we talked about uh, how people used to come into these areas that we grew up in and they'd set up these huge camps to hunt squirrels that was a big deal back then as well it should be squirrel hunting can be so much fun and they're really good to eat and the camaraderie that went around during those camps can he can only imagine and, and really think about some of the stories that might have been told because some of those early guys they probably saw the buffaloes and they saw you know the end of the civil war and they saw a country that in texas that went from uh, where your light was kerosene if you were very fortunate with kerosene lanterns to uh, having electricity and going from horse and buggy days and horses to uh, having cars I remember my grandmother telling me that Grandma Wysoon, when she was tiny, she grew up 
in this area on Cummins Creek, which is not far from where my little place is and where my grand where my granddad's lived. And, and uh, she told me, she said, you know, I remember when we had nothing but horse and buggies. And she said I was long, around long enough to where I was when they put the first man on the moon. And unfortunately passed away not very long of that. But think about that, the, the what that lady saw in terms of transportation was on horseback, train if you were fortunate, uh, stage coaches, wagons, but it was all pretty much related to horsepower in one form or fashion. And then came the Model A and the Model T and the modern cars as we had it and airplanes and all those kind of things to actually putting a man on the moon. They're, that's a great step of technology when you think about it over a relatively short period of time and in one person's life. With my little place, as I hope to do in the future, is I really want to kind of bring it back to what it might have been a bunch of years ago. A bunch of years ago, meaning before we really started doing a whole lot in this country as, as a human species. And I'd love to see some of the plants come back, and hopefully I can have access to some of the, the grasses that were here then. And we've been doing a little planting of that. We've been doing a little planting, as I mentioned, of also of the different brush species. And where possible, too, we've been fertilizing our, our oak trees, going to those areas like in February, digging a trench around the edge of where the drip line is, meaning where the outer limbs are, and putting a little triple 13. I have a tendency also to, to fertilize individual trees, as I mentioned, but also individual plants of yopon, which some people call a yopon holly. Great deer browse. One of the other really good deer browse, really two good deer browses that we have here that also respond well to fertilization are American Beauty Berry, which is an absolutely beautiful uh, berried kind of shrub, and then Smilax. Smilax is, is green briar. Uh, then there are various different species of it, but it's a, it's a primary browse species of white-tailed deer, and if, if there's a chance, and there almost always is, for them to produce berries, those berries are eating, eaten by a great variety of different songbirds. If you listen in the background, I guess when we had the rain the other day, it kind of turned a lot of these little birds on. I was walking around on the property a while ago, and I remember being here when before, before we really kind of before we started trying to do much in terms of wildlife. And, you know, if you saw a crow, maybe one species of hawk, maybe metal larks at the right time, some robins on occasion, because this country used to get covered up with robins when I was a little kid, mockingbird, and uh, maybe one or two other birds. There really weren't a whole lot of birds in this country until I really tried to start bringing back the habitat with planting different things that produce seeds that also produce forage for little little bugs and all those kind of things that, that serve as food for the various different bird species. That's one of the things I hope to do. I, I mentioned in the last podcast there were wild turkeys here, and yes, there were many, many years ago, as there were black bear. Now, the closest wild turkey populations are probably about, oh, maybe 75, 100 miles from where I live or where I now have my place here. And so I doubt seriously that they'll get back over this way. And the problem is, too, we have very, very small land ownership. When I was a kid growing up, if you had 200 acres, you know, you were a pretty good-sized landowner for this area. And these days, if you own 10 or 20 acres, you're considered a pretty good-sized landowner. We've kind of become somewhat of a bedroom community for the great metropolis of Houston, Texas, the sprawling metropolis of Houston, Texas. And 
I, I wish in a lot of ways it was like it was when I was a kid where it was almost take you almost a day to get into, into Houston because you had like 30 miles an hour that you could go and it was at least three hours that way just to get into Houston and, and we very seldom went there to be honest with you. Nobody really wanted to go to Houston except for some of the young people that couldn't make a living out on the properties that they grew up on and they kind of gravitated to that Houston area and as did many, 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 many other settlers if you will. It's kind of the first part of May. Not really kind of the first part of May. It is the first part of May. Our white-tailed deer have a tendency here to start fawning about the first to second week of, of May. Because if you look to see where fawns are born in which months and at which times, they're, they're born during that time so that that mother, the doe, has the best opportunity nutritionally to produce a lot of meat. I'm sorry, to produce a lot of milk. Meat, yeah, because I'm going to try to take that doe probably later on in the hunting season. But they produce a lot of meat if they're on a good nutritional level. And if they're on a good nutritional level, too, those fawns, while their fetuses have a tendency to develop to their potential, to a, a good size, to be a very, very healthy fawn once it passes through the birth canal and kind of drops on the ground and wobbly leg, it starts walking away. If you have vegetation on the ground, too, that provides a fair amount of cover in those situations when those fawns are first born, they're not as apt to get eaten by coyotes. Now, we've got a substantial coyote population, and in, in, uh, these coyotes here are a little bit on the big side. A lot of this area at one time, many, many years ago, was, was home to the red wolf, which probably weighed anywhere from 50 to maybe 60. A really, really big one. I doubt if it weighed much more than that, but uh, they were red wolves, and over the years, the coyotes kind of, kind of moved into this country, and I suspect what red wolves are here were kind of integrated and, and bred with to uh, form a little bit of a hybrid and, and uh, you know, kind of just got taken over by the coyotes that moved into this area. But occasionally, you'll have a coyote here that for some reason the genes are come together just properly aligned kind of thing, and you'll produce a, a fair size much bigger than a usual coyote. Coyotes in this country, for the most part, you know, if you, if you took one that weighed 40 pounds or weighed one that weighed that much, that's a really big coyote. Most of them are in that 30, 35, maybe between 35 and 40 pounds at, at the very most. Two years ago, on the property adjoining mine, which I lease for hunting and, and trying to do much the same thing where I can with that property as I'm doing on mine, I was hunting a little creek bottom, and as I walked the edge of this creek bottom, three does, white-tailed does, came charging out of the creek about, oh, maybe 40, 50 yards in front of me, and I thought, well, that's kind of strange, you know, the, the wind's in my favor, and all those kind of things, and I've been very, very quiet moving along, and, and uh, surely I'm not the one who spooked them, and if I did, if I spooked them, why did they come and run the direction that they did? Well, it didn't take long for me to find out, because Within mint moments of those does appearing and running, I saw movement and noticed it was a huge coyote. Well, fortunately, I had a Ruger number one and a oh, and a 257 Roberts, and I was shooting some Hornady bullets and ammo, and had a Trigicon scope on it that I shot a lot, so I was able to track this this coyote and get a shot off at him, and and got very lucky and. 
I guess those all those many years of, of training the sheep running game many many years ago finally came back to home and after being told for years while doing television shows we were not allowed to shoot any kind of running animals I guess all that came back to the proper muscle memory and, and I pulled the trigger at the right time and put this coyote down that was chasing three grown white-tailed does. When I walked up to him and I go, oh my gracious, this thing's almost as big as a German Shepherd. I thought, this this thing is absolutely huge. Surely just can't be just a regular coyote. Well, my brother's in the livestock business, and he too had been losing some calves, and a couple of them we really figured probably the coyotes had taken them down and eaten them, and, and I kind of wondered maybe if this wasn't one of the culprits, but uh, I was able to drag this coyote back to where I could call it to a, put it on my vehicle and, and carry it up to my brother's place, and he weighs out a lot of feed. He, he does some of his own mixture type things, so his scales have to be pretty darn precise. Put this coyote, and he actually had nothing in his stomach when I put him up there. I found out later when I did a, a necropsy on him. But this coyote on the scales that uh, pretty darn close weighed 57 pounds. Now, that's a whole lot bigger than most coyotes are. So apparently this is one of those coyotes that uh, a red wolves, cross, whatever you want to call it, that kind of bred back to that size of, of what a red wolf could be. And uh, he, I noticed he was a little bit more reddish than, than a regular coyote. But, you know, coyotes sometimes you see they're anyway from from almost white, silver to, uh, you know, a lot of russet on them, uh, very grizzled to, in parts of the eastern part of Texas, we run into a lot of black coyotes. My brother actually shot a couple of them on a lease up close to Lake Livingston uh, numerous years ago. And, and they're <laughs> cold black and really pretty. I've seen one or two of them, and I've always hoped that when I was with Gary Robertson somewhere hunting coyotes that, uh, you know, we might be able to call up one of these odd-colored critters. And, and fortunately, we haven't had a chance to spend a whole lot of time recently in the eastern part of the state where the, these seem to be more the norm than they find in any other parts of the state of Texas. But it brought home the fact that what I tried to do, and, and very recently I was up with Gary and on, with Craig Archer, and, and we were hunting coyotes up on the Hargrove Ranch below the town of Lubbock, uh, kind of the, oh my gosh, it's some of the most beautiful habitats you've ever seen. But it's, it's got an area there, that area has both whitetail and mule deer. In the past I've hunted whitetail, and last year I hunted mule deer, and the, thankfully the mule deer population is coming on pretty darn strong, but with the number of coyotes and predators that are there, we're trying to reduce that number to where we can increase the deer population a bit. The habitat can support it. Now, if the habitat could not support more deer, then probably I'd say coyotes, bobcats, take whatever share you want and you know we'll look look for the rest kind of thing but so what i'm trying to do here on my property and as it worked out my brother between my brother and i and and what he property he owns and what property i lease we've got a close to uh, a little bit over 500 acres that we can do something with and and this type of terrain this type of habitat although those deer are not going to stay on 500 acres or stay within the boundary there are going to be a few that do and so what we're hoping to do over the next two or three years uh, including proper hunting meaning we're not going to take very many deer off of it other than what we feel is necessary to, to maintain the the habitat in the worst of times we're trying to increase that deer population and one of the ways we're doing it with uh, beyond the food aspect of it and the cover aspect of it is to trying to reduce our, our coyote population here as well too. These coyotes have not been called to in a while that I'm aware of, on, at least not the properties 
issues that I have control over. So uh, here, this probably this coming week, good Lord willing, there's time available. I'm going to try to spend a little time calling coyotes here on this property and trying to see, too, if I can't get uh, Gary Robertson to lend me one of the new calls that he developed that uh, takes the sounds to ultrasonic. Those calls work where no other calls work. But uh, I'm also, other than that call that Gary has produced, I've never been real big on, on the electronic calls. I like the aspect of being able to go out there with my mouth-blown call, which is a C3 Burnham long-range caller, mouth call, and call coyotes on my own. And uh, just a little little bit more of a satisfaction of being able to call up a coyote or a critter as wally as a coyote and uh, to take him and hopefully I can take maybe two or three coyotes out of this immediate area right here. We do have some bobcats and right now uh, I'm torn because I really like looking at bobcats and I like seeing their tracks and thinking that they're here and but to be very frank about it if uh if the mountain lion or cougar were as efficient as taking down game as a bobcat is, I don't know if there'd be a whole lot of critters left in North America right now. That that bobcat is unbelievably proficient, particularly when it comes to young fawns or younger deer up to about six months of age. And our deer here aren't, aren't that really big, and so I've actually found places where there was no doubt, you know, find the bones, you can find the tooth marks and uh, in the skull. And when you measure them, there's no doubt what put them there. It was a bobcat. And so it's, it's one of those things to, you know, do I want to really want to see a whole lot of bobcats or do I want to increase my deer population? Bobcats are pretty to look at. And even if I tried to get rid of all of them, I couldn't do it. And uh, even though I've eaten bobcat and it is very similar to wild pork and is very delicious, I really have no desire to try to produce a whole lot of bobcats that I can take the skin from and, and also maybe eat. I uh, really like the old white-tailed deer venison a little bit more than I like that cat venison kind of thing. So kind of torn between that, and I'd really kind of like to get your ideas on it. And, you know, I've, I've told you in the past there's so many ways to get in touch with me. Of course, you can always go to Facebook at Larry Weissin Outdoors and Instagram at Larry Weissin Outdoors. And hopefully in the next few days we'll have a DSC campfire Instagram account as well, too. We're working on that right now. But I'd, I'd like to hear your feelings about how you feel about coyotes, how you feel about bobcats, and, uh, you know, the role that they play. They're an important role, in an important role, I should say, when it comes to uh, to deer management. But they're like anything else. They, they really need to be kind of controlled to where... If you let them get out of hand, they'll really start knocking down a whole lot of animals. And I like to see a bunch of uh, little jackrabbits and, and cottontails. We're getting a few of those coming back. We've got a pretty good jackrabbit population, and I kind of like seeing those around. And so maybe by taking some of those predators, too, I can bring that population of hares and rabbits back a little bit as well, too. But right now, if you're trying to improve the fawn survival rate, or the, the increase the fawn survival rate, right now is a really good time to get after those coyotes and bobcats to, to hit them right now because what happens is is those little fawns when they're born, particularly if there's not a lot of vegetation on the ground, can be seen. And even in those instances, there's no doubt that wild hogs become predators on fawns as well too because it's the nature of that fawn for the first at least couple of weeks to just kind of lay there and not move no matter what's going on. They very seldom jump up and 
and run. And uh, so if, if they'll do that, they'll, they'll, I'm telling you, there is no question. I, years ago, I think I've told you, I shot 20 hogs that I felt like weighed about 150 pounds or thereabouts and over and, and uh, in an area where we were trying to increase the fawn survival rate. And 18 out of those 20 had fawn, whitetail fawns in them. So no question that the wild hog can be a predator on white-tailed deer. I suspect the same thing on mule deer and probably even if they're in antelope country the same thing there as well too. But uh, So I want to get those fawns up to where they have an opportunity. With the vegetation it hides them, the vegetation provides food for mom and for the fawn as well too. When we do start losing some fawns it's usually at that time when those fawns are no longer laying still when something approaches, when a predator approaches, when they when there's that fright, fright and flight sort of thing. Um, I remember a few years ago that we were doing a helicopter survey and, and we were up kind of high and I looked down and I just happened to see a, a little white-tailed fawn and not too far away from it I saw a, a coyote and uh, no doubt this coyote was stalking this little fawn and I'm sure, you know, if nothing happened, he was nothing interrupted him, he was probably going to kill and eat this fawn. So we stayed up high a little bit and, and, and when that coyote got within probably about 10, 12 feet of this this little fawn. That's when that fawn realized what was going on, and it was right at that stage when they go from laying still, not moving, not doing anything, not blinking an eye, to that uh, fright and flight stage when they take off running. Well, this little fawn took off running, and this coyote's right behind him. And I told the helicopter pilot, "I said, get down there. Let's let's see if we can uh, get in between that coyote and that fawn and give that fawn a little bit of a chance." Well, we dropped the helicopter down and maneuvered it around and kind of turned the coyote you know, different direction from what the fawn was going and picked back up again. And unfortunately, as soon as we did, this coyote immediately got back right on that trail and, and uh, followed this little white-tailed fawn into a real dense thicket. And I have no doubt probably that the coyote, once he got him in that thicket, uh, could probably take that fawn down because the fawn really couldn't run and, unless he could hide somewhere. And I, I doubted that he could do that. But... Uh, so we're at that stage where I mentioned here that I really want to start controlling more predators and getting this deer population up a little bit higher than what it is. And it's a good population. We've got a buck to doe ratio of about probably one buck to every two and a half does, which in an open situation really isn't that bad. We're finally getting to a point now where this year, this coming fall, we're probably going to shoot like four or five does. We'll probably shoot a grand total of two bucks off of the property that we take care of. and. Uh, We'll concentrate on those older bucks. Uh, here with us, what I try to do is we try to pass up the spike bucks unless my brother's got grandkids that are right at that stage at six to eight years old and uh, nine years old and, and they're hunting and if uh, if a spike comes by and they're comfortable with taking the shot, by all means, I'd, I want them to take the shot because that's kind of where I started out with it, with, with the spike. And, uh, and then they have to shoot a doe as well, too. That's kind of a, something we've set up. But for the most part, we'll try to put what hunting pressure there is on those bucks that have reached at least three and a half. Now, part of that is, too, that this particular county where we live, where my place is, there is a, uh, a, a rule that says you can't legally take a buck that has less than 13 inches of inside spread, nor one less than has... 13 inches of spread and, and four points on one side. I got really lucky this past year and took my first bucket I've taken off this property in many, 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 many years. And it was a uh, 
four by five, and he had on the four side he had a kicker point, so he had a grand total of ten points, and he was probably well just shy of fourteen inches inside. Our ear tip to ear tip spread on the deer that we have here is uh, is about thirteen inches. So if that with the ears forward and erect looking at you, if that inside main beam spread is, is beyond that, you know, he's probably going to be at least that 13 inches. There were some other bucks that we really were hoping to try to get onto. We've got a couple of ghost bucks whose tracks we see, and I've seen them at night, but we can't seem to see them during daylight hours at all. So I'm sure that happens where you hunt as well, too. Kind of rambled around a little bit this morning talking about some of the things we're doing on my place. And again, I'd love to hear what, what you're doing on, on the places that you have, that you manage, that you own, that you hunt, to uh, get some ideas, maybe maybe even cross with some ideas. You know, one of the things I'm really big into is I want to learn as much as I can. And one of the things is I can learn a whole lot more by listening than talking. Now, the only other talk I'm going to do today before we shut this thing down is, is simply that uh, if you're not a member of DSC, you really need to become a member of the Dallas Safari Club. And we're going more and more by DSC. I think we're going to have a kind of a, a secondary fundraiser this year that's probably going to take place probably in the middle of September. Had so many gracious hunts offered to us for the uh, convention that we had in January, the virtual convention, and a lot of these hunts we're gonna that we didn't sell or didn't put up for auction at the primary convention. We'll put up for auction, and there'll be a virtual auction, but there also will probably be a in-person auction. Then, too, I want to remind you to uh, not forget about the DSCF Summer Gala that is going to take place June the 12th. Uh, it is limited seating, and you can learn more by going to dscf.org or either that or go to the Dallas Fork Club website, which is b-i-g-g-a-m-e.org and learn more about it, but on with both those upcoming auctions, uh, particularly I can tell you a little bit about uh, the one we're having for the DSCF. That's going to be a virtual auction, and it'll also be a live auction at the gala. But uh, there's antelope hunt on that that auction agenda that uh, I'm going to host. It's it's in New Mexico. It's on Mr. John Eason's place, and it's a property that uh, is in an area that, that produces some unbelievably big pronghorn antelope, and he only takes a very, very few of those bucks every year. And So this is going to be an opportunity to be on, on to, to get on that hunt. It's in the early part of October, and uh, I'll be there. I'm going to be hunting as well, too, but I'll be hosting the hunt, and then we've got... Uh, Trigicon's World of Sports Field. We're going to be filming that hunt for an episode coming up for next year, and, and uh, that's one of those really fantastic hunts. And if you're into desert mule deer, let me tell you about a little hunt that's going to take place on the Apache Ranch that is going to be for a buck up to 170. Now, I'm sure they're going to stretch it right to that 170. The Apache Ranch is out in western Texas. It's, it is the finest desert mule deer ranch in Texas. And that said, I can almost say it's the finest desert beauty ranch in the world for the subspecies crook eye. Um, not only will somebody be able to take a 170 class uh, mule deer, which is a really, really nice desert mule deer, and it will be a bow hunt. So, uh, But I've been told by the managers and the people there that says, if you can shoot a bow fairly accurately out to about 20, 25 yards, and if you can hit a target at 40 yards, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be able to take that buck. Now, part of that hunt, too, is going to be an odd hunt, and that's going to be a, a firearm hunt. So uh, 
it's one of those things you can you can take both animals yourself you can hunt with a bow and and take a mule deer a really nice mule deer and then switch over to a rifle and take an odd dad or if you've got a friend that uh maybe you want an odd dad and he wants to he likes to bow hunt you know that might be a really good combination but you can learn more about those at at dscf.org and we'll start flashing some of those things on uh, facebook and a few other places and trying to make people aware of it but Again, if you're not a member of DSC, it is time for you to do so. We do so much. There are other organizations that like to take credit for some of the things that DSC does. That's really fine with us. The bottom line is, is, is we know who's getting it done and, and uh, who's protecting hunter rights and who's protecting this and who's doing this and who's pr- providing monies for research for the animals and the, the habitats that we love. So. Uh, Learn a little bit more about the DSCF. You can contribute. You can contribute through the gala that's coming up uh, June the 12th. And, uh, too, like I say, this I think it's going to be mid-September that DSC is going to offer a whole bunch of hunts up at auction. So, uh, you know, if you can get involved and, and get something really good. And I, I will remind you that uh, these, particularly the DSCF and Dallas Fork Club, they are uh, uh, 301C, 5301C, uh, Nonprofit organizations. So, any dollars that you spend beyond what the stated value is, that's a tax deduction. So, you know, you might, if you're in that bracket, and I hope, I hope you are, that uh, you know you'll be wanting to spend maybe a little bit more than what they state on the value, so that you can get that deduction. But. Let me know what you think. You know, think again, holler at me on uh, Instagram at Larry Weissoon Outdoors or Facebook at Larry Weissoon Outdoors. Let me know what you think about what we're doing and, and also some of the things that you would like to hear about. And, uh, you know, if you've got an argument, I'm ready for an argument. I love, uh, well, not really arguments. We're never going to argue, but we're certainly will express our opinions to each other kind of thing. But, uh, you know, that's something that kind of happens around the campfire. And I'm hoping that you will join me right here again next week around the DSC Campfire. DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by Texas Wildlife Association, working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas raised hunting products, the scent gods, can attract boots for the trails less traveled, Voight, the finest in hunting gear, Pyramid Air for all things air gun, and Ripcord Rescue Travel Protection.